Hope you have your Bible with you. If you do, uh, we are in the Gospel of Matthew still, uh, but a little bit of a change. We have spent the last six weeks walking through what is known as the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. This morning we're going to be staying in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Uh, it's called the Gospel because it's good news. It's called Matthew because it's written after one of Jesus' disciples who would be apostles, known as Matthew the tax collector, also known as Levi. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. For the next several weeks, what we're doing uh, with this series on prayer is we've walked through the Lord's Prayer to kind of get some understanding of what Jesus is teaching us. Now the goal is to look at some other teachings that Jesus has had in prayer. Make sure this is... I don't need to be extra loud. Uh, Sure I do. Uh, so we're, we're going to be looking at some other teachings that Jesus has uh, given to us in prayer. And this morning, our main focus is going to be on one particular verse. And to understand the context of this verse, you've probably heard this story before or perhaps heard this story before. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to really be focusing on verse 13. But we're going to start in verse 12. Um, and the reason we're going to be doing this in the next several weeks, looking at different teachings and events dealing with prayer, is just to understand the significance of the Lord's Prayer in our life. And so uh, here we go. In the Word of the Lord says in Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 12, and we'll just read through verse 13 this morning. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those, those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And to understand what is going on and to understand how this is significant in our life today, we really have to build some context. And so um, you've probably heard that this is the event in Scripture. This is the last week of Jesus's earthly ministry. It's the Passover festival going on in Jerusalem. Jesus has come in with a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and now he's coming to the temple. Um, and this leads up to what is known as the tossing of the temple tables and the and uh, his uh, really just disrupting what is going on there and we can read that and you've probably heard the story like you know Jesus shows a righteous anger and it's not an unrighteous anger and we'll talk about this for a second but to understand what Jesus does and then to understand what he says in the context of prayer and how this relates to our life, we really have to understand the historical setting of this. And so if you like historical things, you're probably going to love this portion of a sermon. If you don't, please stick with me so we can see the significance. Okay, so the temple. Um, let's just let's have some fun with it. Where, what, was, what was the temple in Jesus' day? What was it? Yes, sir. Okay, it was in Jerusalem, and it was where they, being the Jewish people, they would go for prayer. They would also also offer up sacrifices. If you go into the Old Testament, you see that the temple was built by King Solomon. That was David's son. Uh, David was not allowed to build the temple, though he had like the blueprints for it, but he wasn't allowed to build it because of all the blood on his hands, and King Solomon built it. And we get that verse of Scripture, if my people who are called by my name, that comes into the dedication of the temple. And and so Solomon builds this temple and it's glorious. I mean, gold and everything. And just Solomon held nothing back. Well, the temple 
was there for the Jewish people to come in. And within the temple, there were certain sections in which were different parts of worship. And so in the middle of the temple, anybody know what was the middle of the temple? Only one person could go at one time of the year. Sam does. Anybody but Sam? All right, Elliot. The Holy of Holies. Yeah, okay. So the Holy of Holies, and on the this Jewish festival or Jewish day called the Day of Atonement, there would be a priest that would be drawn by law to kind of like, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, mo type of thing in our day. But they would, they would cast lots and that priest would be chosen in which he would go in and offer the sacrifice for the entire nation of Israel into the Holy of Holies because that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the Ten Commandments was. Uh, that, that's where it thought that the complete dwelling of God was. And so he would go in there and just in case that priest was not holier than thou, um, they, they would tie a rope to the gentleman. So when he would go into the Holy Holies, if he was stricken with sin and coming to the holiness of God and they did not hear from him after a while, they could drag him out and then draw lots for the next priest to go on in there. May not have known that, known that but that's the Jewish tradition with the rabbis. And so, so uh, this story of the Holy of Holies is, is the centermost part. This is where the the holy presence of God was said to dwell. In the Day of Atonement, they would go and worship and offer sacrifice so that they could be atoned for all of their sins in the nation of Israel. Well, beyond what Indiana Jones says, we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. Okay, so the Holy Holies is still there, but the temple has changed quite a bit since Solomon built it. See, Israel went into idolatry and a pagan worship. God sent invaders, uh, the, the Assyrians, the Persians, Babylonians, eventually the Romans. And so the temple was destroyed, the original temple. And it, it got rebuilt. If you go to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, they rebuilt it, but nothing close to the splendor of Solomon's temple. Well, when the Romans came in, a man by the name of Herod, anybody heard that name before, Herod? Kind of goes along with the Christmas story sometimes. Well, Herod, Herod was fond of the Jewish people, and he was in charge of Jerusalem. And so one of Herod's uh, missions was to make the Jewish people fond of him. And so what he did is he started renovation projects. And so Jerusalem, he started renovating buildings, and one of his keys for renovation was the temple. And so the temple eventually became New Testament time as Herod's temple. And Herod made it such a, a glory to be seen that it, it's been said that in Herod's temple, you could come in when you started coming into Jerusalem, that the sun would hit the temple just right, that it would be radiating uh, light into the sky because it, it was white and it was just beautiful. And so Herod's got this beautiful temple. And Jesus, in his day, he comes into Herod's temple. Now, you still have the Holy of Holies, where the Day of Atonement was and where the priests would go, but no Ark of the Covenant there, no Ten Commandments there. It was just kind of a significant place. Well, outside the Holy of Holies, you would have this place where it would be the court of the priests. Now, so we go from Holy Holies to the court of the priests. Now, the court of the priests, that's where only the priests could be. If you're from the tribe of Levi, you could go into the court of the priests, and that's where they would, you know, they would take up the lot for the Holy of Holies and the Day of Atonement. And outside the court of the priests, you go a little bit further out, is the court of the Israelites. Now, to be an Israelite means you were born an Israelite. You, you, can, you could be... Uh, a Jewish person being through circumcision and sacrifice, but to be born Israelite was prestigious. And so the court of the Israelites, the Israelite men could only go into the court of the Israelites. 
So you got the Holy of Holies, you got the court of the priests, where only the priests, and you got the court of Israelites, where only Israelite Jewish men could enter. From the court of Israelites, you have what is the beautiful gate which led out to the court of women. And this is the place where Jewish women could, could gather. And from the court of the women, then you go out to the court of the Gentiles. Now, to enable to come to the temple and come into the court of the Gentiles, that means you had to say, I want to adopt the Jewish culture and the Jewish religion. I believe that God is the one true God. And so I'm going to offer sacrifices. I'm going to go through the act of circumcision if I'm a male. And that way, when I come into Jerusalem, I can come into the temple only to the court of the Gentiles, which like the outer layer but I can worship God. Well, here in Matthew 21, it's the Jewish Passover. Um, this is leading up to what we celebrate when it comes to Easter. And Jesus has come in and he starts tossing temple tables and cleaning things out. And a couple other uh, recordings of the gospel says he starts using a, a whip or some sort of uh, lashing device. And he, he's just he's pretty upset. And he's had a pretty rough day because before he came into Jerusalem on this day, he cursed a fig tree. So I don't know if it's like Mondays for Jesus and just a bad day or what's going on. But he comes into the temple and this event takes place in the court of Gentiles. Okay. So this is the area when you come into the temple where everyone would have to come into. You couldn't get into the court of the Israelites or the court of the women or, or even further into the temple unless you came through the court of the Gentiles. And so Jesus comes in and as he comes in, what was going on is in the court of the Gentiles, it was permitted that you could sell certain things for the sacrifice, like the pigeons mentioned here in Matthew 21 or, or, or sheep or, or bulls and things like that. So that was permitted. That's not the problem. The problem is Jesus comes into the temple is with the money changers. And even though we read money changers here in verse 12 and it comes across as the bad guys, what was going on at this particular situation is when Jesus comes into the temple, you've got this selling of goods. And the reason they're selling goods is because Jews have been scattered all around the world ever since you go back to when the Assyrians came in. And so they're scattered and they're coming back to the Passover because that's the day you just make the pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to celebrate God at the Passover, remembering when God brought us out of Egypt, out of slavery. And most of them would stay till what we call the Pentecost. And there's remembering when the law of the Lord came down. And so Jerusalem was packed, which meant the court of the Gentile was packed. And Jesus comes in and here's what's going on. It is an auction. Not a bad thing, because if you're, if you're coming in from far away, you have to be able to have an animal to offer up as a sacrifice, to which Scripture says has to be without blemish. Meaning it has to be perfect. Now, they didn't have trucks and trailers and hitches and things like that. And so if you brought an animal for wherever you travel from, there was a good chance something would happen to that animal, which would make it without blemish. And so this service was provided as you traveled into Jerusalem, you came to the Passover and came to the festivals at the temple. You could come into the court of Gentiles and purchase something to sacrifice just in case an animal you started without blemish, but had blemish by the time you did there without perfection. And so you could buy this so you could go about the sacrifices and the worshiping of the Lord. Not a bad thing. It, it was actually celebrated because it, it helped people out. But as the money changers, what would they have is basically what's called a temple tax. And, and to understand how this played out and what Jesus is really showing his righteous anger to. So let's say we, we all make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Okay, we're going to go worship God at the temple, what we, we would call church today. 
So if we're going to worship the way Jesus and the Jews worship, we have to come to the temple and we have to pay a temple tax. Now, the temple tax for us in American money would be about seven bucks. So we have to pay the temple tax simply to get into the temple. This, this was customary. It was to help support the temple, keep the temple beautiful, keep things running and all that. So there's nothing wrong with that. But once we get there, since we're traveling overseas and we're traveling a long distance, we're not going to take pigeons with us on the plane or sheep or, or goats or bulls. And so we're going to say, we're going to get there. We're going to buy our sacrifice when we get to the temple. That way we know it is without blemish. Now, there were people selling animals outside of the temple grounds. So we could go, let's say we'd go and buy a sheep for four bucks outside the temple. But once we took it into the temple, after we paid the temple tax, the priest would be in there. They would welcome him in. And the very first thing they would do was inspect your animal because they'd have to make sure it was without blemish. Now, the majority of time, according to Jewish historians, the priests would reject the animal brought in from outside the temple. So we could buy a sheep for four bucks outside, but when we got into the temple, the price rose 14 times. So now we're not paying four bucks. Now we're paying 56 bucks. And on top of that, we paid seven bucks to get in. But since we only had a $10 bill, the money changer has a fee for giving us change back. And so now we've paid $7 to get in. We've paid a temple tax of a dollar on top of that. We've also paid a dollar for the currency exchange because we had money and they only had temple money there. And so now we're nine bucks in to get into the temple. We're 46 bucks to bring our animal to sacrifice so we could worship God in the temple. We're already 55 bucks in the hole. Also, we can worship God. Now, to put this in today's terms, if, you, if we did this today at church, because the average of paying that sort of money, you earn about three bucks a day. So we're 85 bucks in whole. So we're 25 days worth of wages, almost an entire month worth of salary just to come and worship God. Like we know he commands us to. So we're just doing what God wants to do, but we're, we're paying almost a whole salary, a whole month's worth of salary just to worship God. So today's terms, let's say you came to Harvest Hill today. And to come into Harvest Hill, we made you, and the average income in, Amer in Missouri is about 45000 for the year. We divide it by 365, and then we multiply by 25. You can do the math later. I already did it for you. So that comes up to $3,104.18 based on the average income in Missouri. So here's how this plays out today. You come to church, and in order for you to have your nice, comfy seat and worship God and be in here, we have our elders and our deacons, and we'll probably put our youth pastor out there too because you know, we're always asking for youth money. And so we'll put them out there, and we'll say, all right, for you to go in and have a seat, that's $3,104.18. And if you want a back row seat, that's $3,500, right? Because the Baptist church, you charge more for back row. And that's every time you come to church. Every time. And this is what makes Jesus angry. Is that these people who were God's people, people who had desired to make God their one true God and, and come into the Jewish customs and the traditions, these people had come to the temple to offer up their sacrifice so they could be made right with God, come to celebrate how God had freed them and liberated them from slavery. 
And instead of a place of worship, instead of a place of prayer, it would become a circus. Imagine if you had to go to church and every time you went to church you were trying to worship God in the midst of a cattle auction. That's what's going on here. And so as, as Jesus comes into the temple, he becomes angry. But Jesus has a righteous anger here. When he drives out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and seats of those who sold pigeons, he's angry, but it's a righteous anger versus an unrighteous anger. Jesus' anger was because of what these people were doing in hindering others in coming to the presence of the Lord. His anger was for reverence of God. And unrighteous anger is when we get mad because we don't get our way. So Jesus' anger is righteous because he has an anger towards God's will and God's law and he wants it to be upheld and he wants people to be able to come and worship God. And he gets upset that the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders and the, the priests are instead putting up barriers so people can't do that. And so he begins tossing things. But do you notice what he says? Verse 13. He says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. He does not say my house should be a house of preaching, though preaching of the word of God would happen. He doesn't say my house is going to be a house of worship and we're going to sing songs, though that's surely would happen in the temple. But he says my house shall be a house of prayer. This comes from the book of Isaiah in the passage in Isaiah where Isaiah is talking about the foreigners being able to come into the temple and worship God and meet with God and commune with God. And so Jesus quotes from Scripture in Isaiah where, where God is, is telling his people after they've gone through his persecution that God is now going to open the doors and open the gates so all may enter in. And so Jesus quotes from that for a very specific reason. As he sets up to head to the cross, he's letting people know that you are putting this barrier which God specifically opened opened up for all the people to be able to come into his presence and to worship him. But you're making this place a den of robbers. It comes from the prophecy of Malachi where God comes to his people, say that you're robbing me. And that's particularly dealing with the tithe. So Jesus takes these two passages of scripture and says, look, this is what's happening. You're robbing God's glory and you're taking it for yourself. See, Jerusalem lived in poverty. The Jewish people lived in poverty. They were under persecution of the Roman Empire. They only had to pay temple tax. They had to pay Roman tax. Matter of fact, it, the priests in Jesus' day were the only financial elite. And that's because they got a cut, which is why so many animals that were bought outside had blemishes when they came inside the temple. Jesus says, you're making this a spectacle. Now, how does this come back into prayer and what we're talking about. Well, obviously, Jesus says, my house should be a house of prayer. Well, for the last six weeks, we've walked through the Lord's Prayer, and we've been focusing on that prayer is about our community with God and our communion with one another. Our Father. Our Father in heaven. Prayer is about focusing on God's power and His authority. 
Hallowed be your name. Prayers about the reverence of God and an awe and humility to God. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Prayers about God. I'm submitting to your authority. Uh, give us our daily bread. Is seeing God as our source and our provider, the one who, who gives us our needs. Forgive us. Seeing God as the, the only means of forgiveness. As we forgive others, seeing God as the one that leads us into action. Uh, lead us not into temptation. That God is our shepherd and our guide. And so we have to apply his word of God and deliver us. That God is the one that, that encompasses us and snatches us out of evil. And so we walk through that. When Jesus says, my house should be a house of prayer, it's in the context of how he teaches us to pray in Scripture. Now, he's talking about the physical temple at this moment in time. But if we go for, forward into Scripture, what we see now is if I call myself a Christian, if I have made a confession of faith that Jesus Christ died for my sins and he rose again and he is the only way to the Father, and I believe that in my heart and I've confessed that with my mouth and, and I am saved, the Bible then says that God, for some reason, places his Holy Spirit inside of us. And the Bible goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple? Jesus is in the midst of the temple here in Matthew 21. He says, my house should be a house of prayer. And he's speaking about the temple of God. And now Paul, through the, the, the wisdom of the Spirit, says, you are now the temple because God's Spirit dwells in you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 says, For we are the temple of the living God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. So how does this all come together? for us today in dealing with prayer. Jesus comes in the temple and says, my house should be a house of prayer, speaking about God's temple, his house. Now under the new covenant, through the blood of Jesus Christ, and being given the spirit, now we are the temple of God or the house of God. So if the temple is a house of prayer, what should we be as God's people? People of prayer. Is that what you're going to say, Sam? Sam's got it. I'm just talking with you, Sam. No. <laughs> As God's people, because this is a declaration that Jesus makes under the new covenant as well, that my house should be a house of prayer. So we are now the temple of the living God, the spirit inside of us. So now we as God's people are to be a people of prayer. And so walking through the Lord's prayer, we are to be a people who is reliant upon God, has reverence toward God, is submitting to God, is leaning on God and, and listening to God, allowing God to lead us. And we are also people of action. We are people who are saved by grace. And so we are people who continue to offer grace. But to be a people of prayer also means that we are continuously and constantly in communication with our Father. It is something only we as believers can have. See, we take prayer too lightly. According to Scripture, we, the ones who are saved, are the only ones who can pray. We are the only ones who can call God our Father. 
We are the only ones who can enter into the throne room of grace because Jesus Christ is our mediator who stands between us. We are the only ones who have the Spirit inside us crying out, Abba, Father, and giving us the word to say. And therefore, we are the only ones, as God's people, are the ones who can come before the Father and intercede on those in our lives to lift them up in prayer, to be a constant communication with God about our, our family, about our co-workers, about the people that we care about, even the people we don't care about. God has given us that responsibility. We are to be a people of prayer because we are the temple of God and the temple is to be a house of prayer. So how can we play this out today? Have you ever told anybody at any point in time, and I won't ask you what the circumstances was, but hey, I'll pray about that. Anybody ever said that? Or I'll pray for you. I think sometimes we use that phrase. I know I've, I've, I've seen it, and I've probably done it myself, where someone asks, hey, can you help out? Well, let me pray about that, right? Can you help out with the van ministry? Can you help out with the nursery? Can you help out with youth? Can you help out with VBS? Can you? I'll pray about that. And I'm not denying that people do pray about that, but sometimes I think we can say, because that's, that's the Christian thing to do. We're supposed to be people of prayer, so we'll pray about things. Or maybe you've heard someone who's going through a difficult time, a difficult situation, and you just you tell them in that moment, I'll be praying for you. Anybody ever said that? Hey, I'll be praying for you. And that's great, because I know there's a lot of people in this room that you do do that. You, you put it in your phone or in your journal, and you make a mental note of it, and you're one of those that you can remember. And when you go and you pray, you remember to pray for that person, and that is great. That's spectacular. But here's what I want us to begin to do instead. Instead of saying, I'll pray about that, instead of saying, I will pray for you, I want to challenge you to be a people of prayer, to be a temple of living God, a house of prayer. And when God brings a need in front of you, someone is hurting, someone is struggling, someone's going through a rough time, someone's trying to figure things out in life, don't just say, I'll pray for you or I'll be praying about that. Why don't we, as God's people, who have this incredible privilege to come into the throne room of grace, the holy of holies. So let's pray about that right now. Why don't we drop everything that's on our plan, everything that's on our schedule, every, every place that we've got to be in the next five minutes? Let's pray about that right now. Let's be a people who make prayer a priority. The Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. Because it connects us. And here's the beauty of prayer. When we understand this privilege we've got and this reliance upon God and we're praying, and you may be like, well, that may just make me uncomfortable. I don't like praying in public and I don't like praying out loud. That's the beauty of prayer is that if, if, if it's biblical prayer, the Spirit's the one praying. It's groaning words too deep for us to even understand. So we just, we, we do this and what we do is we fulfill the great commandment. We show people that we love God and we are loved by God. That's why we're able to pray. And we show people that we love them and we're willing to allow God to disrupt our time so that we can be used to intercede for them in that moment. 
So here's the thing. If I ask you to do something, you say, well, I'll pray about that. I'm going to try to make the commitment and say, well, let's do it right now. Let's see what God has to say. Because if we're using prayer as an excuse to get out of something, then we really don't understand prayer. The final thing I want us to take from this idea of prayer is Jesus comes in and, and he's so angry at what people have made the temple of God, the place of God, the holiness of God that begins driving people out. Because there's something going on at the temple on that day, and here's what it's doing. It is hindering people from being in the presence of God. People have come and desire to hear from God and be in God's presence and offer up sacrifice. And what is happening is a hindering of the people to be in the presence of God. And so here's our personal application. When it comes to my prayer life, when it comes to my holiness, is there something in my life that is hindering others who know me better than the preacher knows me? Better than my parents know me, my neighbor? Is there something in my life that is hindering them those who know me best from coming into the presence of God because I am creating a stumbling block before them. Is there something in my life that is not showing I am a house of prayer because I am not living a righteous and holy life? The Bible says God hears the prayer of the righteous. And God saves us, justifies us immediately but he continues to want to sanctify us or set us apart for the sake of holiness. The Bible says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Is there something in my life that God, you know, we, I come before God and I pray to God and I want to hear from God and God has revealed something in my life that I know I shouldn't be doing, an action I have that I shouldn't be taking part in, words or conversation I shouldn't be indulging in. Something on the internet or something I shouldn't be watching. God has put that conviction on my heart that I shouldn't do this. But I choose to ignore His leadership over my life. And is that something going to become a stumbling block for those who know us as God's people to say, that's why I'm not a Christian? We're either leading people to Christ or we're keeping them from it. And that's what Jesus gets so upset about. Is that the people who are to represent God and the priests were not leading people into his presence, but they were keeping them from coming. Can that be said of us? If you're here this morning, we talk about prayer. And one thing I mentioned is that you can't pray. I mean, you can pray all you want. But you can't pray the way the Bible defines unless you're saved. You just can't. And I think we need to understand that. If you're here this morning and you're trying to be a good person, trying to go to church enough or just do enough good things before this life is over, the Bible says you're wasting your life because there's no one righteous and no one does good. And so we can try to play the part. We can try to be Christian. We can go to church and play church. We can do all that stuff, but we won't fool the one who's going to judge us all. The Bible says we're all sinners. There's no one righteous. No, not one. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. 
But because God loves us, is for us, not against us, He didn't have to do it. This is His grace, His mercy. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live a life we couldn't to die on a cross, to take our punishment, our sins, God's wrath upon Him. And they placed Him in tomb, but He came out three days later. The Bible says when I place my faith in that, not about what I can do, but what He has fully done, and I believe that in my heart and I confess with my mouth, I will be saved. You may be here this morning, you've been playing and doing all the things you think you should do, but you know you're not. You know you don't have Jesus as your Savior. You know the Spirit's not inside of you. You know you don't belong to God. And God has brought you to this moment not to build you or to tear you down, but to build you up. He's inviting you into a relationship with Him. I'm going to ask Jason to come down. And if that's you this morning and you know you need to be saved, just come down and let Jason... No, say, so, you know, I need, I need Jesus. I need to be saved. He's going to pray with you. It's not going to be like a magical prayer just to lead you through prayer and talking with God, inviting Jesus into your life. Maybe you're here this morning and God just really just brought the hammer of conviction upon your heart that, wow, okay, God, you've been telling me this for a long time that this should not be in my life, and it could be causing a hindrance from people coming to know you because of my testimony. And you just need to come and kneel before the Father and say, God, I repent. You've led me to this place. You're trying to deliver me from this temptation. I repent. Wherever you are, I believe God has spoken through his word. Let's pray together and announce our time of response. Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you for loving us. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for your word that is ever true, never changes. Father, we come this time as your people, a people who are saved by grace. We come this time as a people who need your grace and your mercy and need your salvation. And Father, I pray that today that your spirit will continue to work, that those who need to accept you as their Lord and Savior, your spirit would just not let them stay in their seat or stand by their seat, that they would just have to come down and let it be known. For us here this morning who just know there are things in your life that you've been, you've been revealing and trying to call out for the sake of our holiness and our purity, this morning you bring us this passage, Lord, to drive it out. And so, Lord, let us not be hard-hearted as, as the children of Israel were at times. But, Lord, let us have a heart of humility and a heart of repentance, a heart of accepting you and what you want to do in our life and making us holy and worthy in the temple of you dwelling inside of us. I thank you for this day. I thank you for what you're going to do here in this moment as we come to a time of response. Let this continue to be our act of worship and be in spirit and truth. And Father, we pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said.